All right, good morning, church. Good to uh, have all of you with us this morning. Uh, grateful. I, I hope you feel uh, energized with your extra hour sleep. Maybe some of you didn't know you got an extra hour sleep, okay? I think most of you are familiar with that. So just a couple quick things. If you're visiting with us today, we want to welcome you. If you want any uh, information about our church family, there's a welcome center right outside the front door to, or right outside that door to the right. And uh, you can sign up for email there and uh, make contact with us in any way that may be helpful to you. When you come in on Sunday mornings, you're given a little leaflet that has a lot of data about our church family and the activities that are taking place. The other thing, if you're on the email, you'll receive a weekly email, typically on Friday or Saturday from Christina, uh, our administrative assistant. I looked through that uh, email yesterday, and uh, I, I'll confess that often I don't because I'm typically aware of what's going on, but there's a really uh, beautiful list of the various things that are taking place within our church family. So I want to encourage you to take time to review that, and uh, that way you can be aware of what's happening. It's also the place where you can sign up for various uh, church events. So one of the things that we do uh, probably for the last 10 years is something related to uh, Samaritan's Purse called Operation Christmas Child. There's boxes out front. Uh, there's uh, data on those boxes about the kinds of things they're looking to collect. You fill the box, bring it back. The last time that you can bring it back is... I think the 19th of November, so two weeks away is the last time we'll be collecting the boxes. They're then shipped around the world for various types of ministry, uh, outreaches that are being done through them. They're gifts for children in foreign countries, and we would encourage you to participate in that. If you are not inclined to get a box and fill it, the, what you can do is make a donation. So it costs 10 bucks to get each box shipped out. So if you can help out with that, there's an offering box at the table, and Rita Sosnovic will be glad to answer any questions that you have about that. So when you leave today, just to the right side, there's a nice place there where she'll be, and you can make contact with her if you want to help uh, with that. And Sandy, I believe the choir is meeting today? Yes. Okay, so after the service, if you're interested in participating in the Christmas choir, just come up to the front after the service, and she will meet with you and get you started in practice for our Christmas choir presentation. That will be a joint choir with the Walter Hoving Home Choir, which will be a really uh, beautiful Sunday. So the other thing I just wanted to bump real quick is that we started a preschool story hour for moms of preschoolers. That's at 3.30 on Thursdays. Again, all the data you need for that is on the email that you receive. Okay, I want to ask you to stand with me. And I want us to read together off the screen Psalm 63. Let's read together. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will sing to you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. So, Father, this morning we, we come as needy people. And, Lord, the reason our hands are extended to you is because it is a sign of surrender and a sign of our great need. 
Lord, help us this morning as we come to remember that there is a reason that we sing to you. Lord, it is to remind us of your glory, of your greatness, of your capacity to meet every need in our lives. And so we come, Lord, with empty hands. And we extend them to you as a symbol of the needs that we have in our lives. And they, they, Lord, we know run from a lot of physical needs to emotional needs to financial needs. God, there's a lot of needs represented in this room this morning. And this text tells us, for this reason, I will praise you. I will look to you. I will extend my hands to you, trusting in you to meet my needs. We pray this morning, Lord, for uh, those in our church family that have gone through extended sickness. Uh, the ones that come to mind by name are uh, Linda Matthews uh, and Diana Kelly. God, we just ask your favor over these dear women. We pray that your healing hand would continue to be at work in their lives. We thank you for the opportunities that you're giving them to serve you and to honor you despite the struggle that is present. We ask that your favor would rest heavy on them. Lord, for those here this morning with heavy financial needs, Lord, I, I know some of those folks personally. And God, I pray that as they extend their hands to you on a daily basis in worship, that they would find them being filled by your presence and by your provision. We trust you for that. Lord, bless our season of worship this morning. As we lift our voices, use the truth that is sung to encourage our hearts together in our walk with you. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you will now bless this season of worship and song for the glory of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's worship him together. strong and mighty fortress raise your voice now no love is greater who can stand against us if our god is for us even when i stumble even when i fall even when i turn back still your love is sure you will not abandon, you will not forsake. You will cheer me onward with never-ending grace. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? can separate us hell and death will not defeat us he who gave his son to free us 
strong and mighty fortress raise your voice now no love is greater who can stand against us if our god is for us sing with joy now our god is for us the father's love is a strong and mighty fortress raise your voice now no love is greater who can stand against us if our god is for us It's 
Your spirit is my help. He'll fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. I'll say that it is well. Oh, I know that it is well. I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. Don't know what you're doing, but I know. Yo 
calling on the God of Jacob, whose love endures through generations. I know that you will keep your covenant. I'm calling on the God of You moved in power. 
so thankful that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. From the Old Testament to the New Testament to today, Lord, you are always there. You always know what we need, and we can always count on you. Lord, we just pray that you would bless this service today. Bless the lives that are here, and may our eyes look to you. And may we fall more in love with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, good morning. Great to have you here. Two more quick announcements, and then we want to show you just a two-minute video, and then we'll turn it over to Pastor James. Um, we have a special treat next Sunday for you. Um, one of my colleagues, his name is Dr. John Soden, an Old Testament expert who just finished a commentary on Genesis, so it's somewhat fresh in his, his mind. But he has uh, left the college scene, and he's going into missions. And so um, when I heard that, I thought it would be great to get him in here to preach and teach. So during the Sunday school hour next week, um, we'll all be meeting together over in this classroom here. We'll, we'll fit everybody in somehow. We'll figure it out. We'll put another layer of chairs up or something. Um, he's going to both be sharing something about his ministry briefly, and then he's going to pull back and kind of give you some big picture ideas of the whole book of Genesis itself, which will kind of fit with what we're doing here during the morning worship service. And then we've asked him during the morning worship service to actually preach on Genesis 4 for us. So I think you'll find it to be a very special treat. He's a 
excellent scholar, and he, he was a pastor for years. He's, he's an excellent communicator. So I think you'll really, really, really enjoy. So come on out next week for Sunday School. Even if you don't normally come out, come on out. Special time. We'll look at Genesis and hear about the neat ministry he's involved in with a special focus on northern India, which is really interesting in light of um, some of the other work we're doing here at the chapel. Second announcement, um, on December the 9th, which is a Saturday, December the 9th, uh, we're going to be showing um, I Heard the Bells. Did anybody see I Heard the Bells last Christmas? A couple of you did. Okay, excellent. It's an excellent movie. Well, Tim, Tim Con, Tim, this was Tim's idea, and it was a great idea, but he, we were talking, and he said, like, hey, I want to show um, I Heard the Bells on that Saturday night so we can have people invite lost folks in and other Christians and just fill this place out. So it's really great. I said, Tim, now you do know the main actor in that uh, is, is teaches at Lancaster Bible College. He said, I did not know that. I said, yeah. So I said, I'll talk to him. So we t I talked to him and um, he's going to actually be coming that night. And so we're going to have like an, uh, I don't know, we it's at 5.30 to 6.30. We're going to have like an open time here. You can meet him, talk to him. He'll kind of then give us, I, I met with him this, this week for lunch, and uh, he said, what I'd love to do is give the God story behind the movie that people maybe would, would never have heard about, just how God works behind the scenes and does marvelous things. I said, that'd be right on. So he's going to do that. Then we're going to watch the movie, and then I think Tim will probably give just a short kind of challenge for those that are lost. And then if you want to ask, come up and talk to him and ask him more questions, great. That's fine. You can do that as long as you want. Well, well, not as long as you want. We'll stop it at some point. But anyway, so that's the plan. But what we really want you to do is be thinking now strategically, who can I invite out on December 9th? There's free food. I mean, Kathy always does a great job with the food back there. And then he'll speak. We'll have the movie and we'll have some more fellowship time. So please be thinking now about who you can invite out, okay? We want to show you just a short clip in case you haven't seen the movie to give you a feel for what it entails. And it's about two minutes, and then James will be coming and delivering the message. Is it Christmas now, Papa? Well, it's not Christmas until we hear the bells. The bells. Hopeful voice of the church. Already enshrined as America's poet, his works have helped shape the national character. He is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Smile. Smile. You've written poems that rage against slavery. You've inspired the union with Paul Revere's rhyme. You'd make a brave soldier. You think so? I intend for my pen to raise unity, not swords. Well, it has raised an army of swords. I will stand and I will fight. Promise me you will not let this war take our sons. You have my promise. A merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. The bell has fallen from its steeple. Henry, have you started writing again? No, I haven't. A poet's voice, silenced by grief. What are you carrying, Henry? 
whatever it is, you can leave it here. You are that bell, and you are not done ringing. Life seems more sacred to me than ever. My poet. You're beautiful. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. You are a good man, Henry. the bells on Christmas Day. So we hope that you will be with us uh, on that night. It's going to be a great night, uh, an opportunity to uh, hear that gospel message again. Yeah, Children's Church. I, I tend to remember. <laughs> but every uh, children, can you be dismissed for junior church? And for the rest of you, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As you're turning there, before I do that, I know I need to do this, right? I'm not good at this, um, so... Uh, I am looking forward to having a number of you here on November the 18th. Why? Uh, some of you struggle managing emotions. Some of you struggle with conflict. Some of you struggle with just understanding who you are and your emotions and life. And, and one of the things that I can do is I can help people learn about how they can master themselves. We're going to teach you six skills in that day. We're going to teach you six skills. The first one is a God awareness. Understanding that God is with you wherever you go and keeping your focus on him. More often than not, when you find yourself going through struggles, you have completely forgotten him. So we're going to teach you about that skill. Second is we're going to teach you about a God engagement. Before you ever go out horizontally and try to deal with someone, what you need to be able to do is to engage God and go into a relationship with him. Ask him. Call out to him. Ask him to lead you by his word. Ask you to lead you by his spirit. There's a second set of skills that we're going to teach you is a self-awareness and a self-engagement learning about yourself. And each one of you is unique. Each one of you have your, your strengths and your growth areas. You have your challenges and difficulties, and they intersperse with who you are and in relationship. So a self-awareness and a self-engagement, understanding how I can learn to control myself in the midst of the struggles. And then there are two more skills that we're going to teach you. We're going to teach you about a other awareness and another engagement. How do I become more and more aware and empathetic and sensitive to the needs of others that are around me, and how can I engage them in godly ways? We're going to do that through teaching you how you go through a change process. We're going to teach you how you manage conflict, and we're going to teach you about relationships. So those are three things that we're going to be looking to do. It's a three-hour and 15-minute three uh, meeting. So we're going to start here at 9 a.m. on Saturday the 18th. It's free. There's no charge. And I, I'd love it for you to come. If you know of somebody that could benefit, that struggles in relationships, struggles with conflict, I would strongly encourage you to bring them. Bring them along with you. Bring them to that, and then bring them to hear the bells, and we'll have a great 
time of just ministering to them. So I look forward to seeing you. There is a link if you want to sign up that went out in uh, the email. And if you need a link for it, please let me know. Okay, enough with that. Tim, I did it, okay? You're welcome. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And as you're turning there, last week we had this opportunity to speak about the struggles and why we have all the struggles that we have in this world. I want you to imagine um, a world, you're on the precipice of this paradise, and, and you're peering into this paradise, this magnificent garden, and it's, it's beautiful. And, and you look, it's a place where every need is met. It's a place where beauty abounds and harmony reigns. And as you, as you look in, as you peer into this, it's just amazing. It's an amazing place of peace. Now, I want you to pick her, picture one single choice that forfeited it all. One single choice, a choice that seemed to be so small, but yet desirable, but it was filled with consequences so severe, so difficult, that it affected every fabric of this world and every fabric of your life. See, that's not just the story of Adam and Eve. Let's be honest, it's, it's our story. We, we have opportunities for greater levels of peace and we choose more often than not to move away from that in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act. And the world is filled with echoes of that loss in the Garden of Eden centuries ago. The world is a place where the ground is hard, and the world is a place where pain is real. And it's a place where we are yearning. There is something in all of humanity that yearns to get back to that garden. They yearn to get back to a place of peace and harmony and hope. And there's a voice that is there in all of humanity that beckons them, that encourages them, that calls them back to that peace. Beyond their failures, beyond the difficulties, beyond the challenges, it is a voice of hope. So they look for that voice of hope and they turn to the wrong sources. Last week we had this opportunity to talk to you about the first part of Genesis. And in Genesis, remember the first several verses, we looked at the tragedy of humanity and the tragic fall of humanity and that first step. And if you remember, we talked about perversion. And the perversion started with the fact that they, they doubted the word of God. They doubted the majesty and the authority of God, and they doubted his goodness. And really, at, at heart level, that, that's all of us. All of us find ourselves perverting the goodness of God, the word of God, and the authority of God. But it wasn't just their perversion of that, which was influenced by Satan. It was the fact that they had this pretense. They, they looked at the world, and they started to judge the world, this tree, as something that was good for them when God said it wasn't. And it's the pretense of humanity that we have this tendency to elevate our thoughts and our abilities above God. And we think that we know better. That's what our foreparents did. And from the perversion to the pretense to the panic, and you remember the panic was there. The panic was great. They immediately, after they'd eaten this fruit that they saw, that they desired and they took, they immediately felt shame. And the shame, this brokenness, there was the shame between them and God, and then there was the shame between one another. And as humanity often does, what did they do? They tried to cover up that shame. They sewed fig leaves together, their first clothing, they sewed together, and the problem was, it didn't 
cover the shame that was inside. It was never going to do that. Well, it wasn't just the panic of shame, but it was the panic of fear. They, they heard God, and in the past, what they would have done was run to God, but now in panic, what are they doing? They're running away from God, which is crazy. The all-knowing, ever-present God, you can never run away from him. You go to the heights, and he's there. You go to the depths, and he is there. And so they went from the perversion to the pretense to the panic to, you remember, God prodded them, and he, he went after them. And God was asking them questions. God went and pursued them, which is so important. Somebody asked me after service, does that mean that we as Christians in Christ don't pursue God? Of course we pursue God. We have been in, enabled by the Holy Spirit to pursue God. But prior to that, we have a tendency to run away from God until he gives us a new heart and until we are in a right relationship with him. But you, out of the perversion and the pretense and the panic, there was this projection of guilt. When, when he went to Adam, he called out to Adam, and we'll spend a little bit more time on that today. What did he do? He immediately went and horizontally, it's the woman, and then he went vertically, that you gave me. He projected blame away from himself to someone else, not himself. And as, as we think about that, the deception that the serpent brought about, the downfall of humanity, the shift from divine trust to distrust, we look in the mirror of God's word today, and as we look in the mirror, we see ourselves. That's us. We doubt God's word. We doubt God's authority. We doubt God's goodness. And we have the, the things that we look for, we see, we desire them, we want to take them, and we struggle with shame. And we struggle with fear. And we struggle with guilt. And we try to cover it up. We try to run and hide. And we try to blame. And that's us. This is probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible because it tells you about the human predicament. But what it does is, this is what the beauty of this chapter is. It, it's the penalty of guilt, which we're going to talk about, but it is the promise of grace. That you're going to see that even there in the garden, God is beckoning you to recognize that my son is coming. There is someone outside of you that can save you, and that can transform you, and to bring healing in your heart and restoration. Now today, one of my favorite hymns, is before the throne of God above. This hymn, I, it just eats me up every time I hear it, and every time I sing it, it just kind of brings tears to my eyes. And as I was working through this message this week, I just kept hearing um, passages from that hymn over and over again. So I'm gonna probably intertwine um, parts of that hymn as we work together today. See, as we step into the garden, out of the garden, east of Eden, we are looking back at a place where we had peace, where we had hope, where we had joy. We, didn't have, we don't have it anymore, but we can have it again. Because the Lord Jesus Christ came here to rescue you, to give you peace today, and then tell you that I will take you to ultimate peace in heaven. Look with me here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Genesis 3, verse 9. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Let's pray. So Lord, I, I thank you for the fact that you are a great God. God, you promised that when we ate it, we would surely die and we did. 
Now you could have made that judgment even harsher for us. And in your grace and mercy, you didn't. In your grace and mercy, before this world was ever created, before Adam and Eve had ever sinned, you, your son, and your spirit had already planned to rescue humanity. I praise you for that. Lord Jesus, I thank you for being the, the one that bore our guilt, the one that took your father's wrath, the one that opened the way to heaven for us. And Holy Spirit, open, thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for giving us the word through Moses. Help us to speak well. Help us to hear well. Help us to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Four steps um, today. Uh, first step is the prosecution. Second step is the penalty. Third step is the promise. And the fourth step is the parting. Prosecution, penalty, promise, and parting. Let's start with the prosecution. In verse 9, God begins an, an arraignment of such. And what he does is he's calling the man to come. And it's a probing question. God has four probing questions here, which is so important for us to know that God is, is calling us to look at ourselves and to be self-aware, to be unable to understand what's going on, really, and be honest about what's happening. And God says, I, he called this man, and he says, where are you? Now, God is calling Adam and Eve to give an account. This is so important. And it's like he's initiating a legal procedure. I'll get to that in a moment, why that's important. And so he's calling you into his chamber, and this omniscient God is coming to you. And what he does is this. He he knows exactly where Adam is. He's accommodating us through our human limitations. This omniscient God is, is giving us words that would try to help us to understand who he is. So he's asking questions. And this serves as an invitation to confess. Adam, I'm asking you to confess. Where are you? Now this, this phrase is in the singular, man, but it's not just this man, it's man and woman. But he's calling out specifically for Adam, and we talked about this last week, because Adam was set up as the leader, as theologians call it, the federal head. He was the leader of us. He was the leader of humanity, and he was the person that was supposed to be the one that protected his wife and led his wife, and he chose not to do that. So the question that God was asking was to bring man out of his hiding, out of his covering up and helping them to understand the struggles that they're having. So there was an arraignment. Then there was an examination. Look here in verse 10. The examination starts here. He says, okay, in verse 9, where are you? And then he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. So we see this examination that Adam says, I heard the sound of you, and, and probably God calling out to them. And what did they do? They ran and hid. This was a sure sign that they had died already. There was a brokenness. There was an alienation between the two of them. That's why they tried to cover up physically. But there was an alienation between them and God. Instead of running towards God, they are running away from God. And this fig leaves, all the fig leaves, all the clothing that they tried to do from the outside doesn't change what has already happened internally and then between themselves vertically. Nakedness is interesting because in the Old Testament, nakedness is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of neediness. It's a sign of humiliation. So when you are found yourself in that way, what you are finding that you are broken. The intimacy that was there once in this marriage has now been separated. And it's been separated for, um, for eternity here, or at least for this period of time. 
And so what do they do? Their conscience is condemning them. So what do they do? They hide themselves. And that's us. And God then asks this probing question in verse 11. He, he says this. Now, Adam has just said that I was naked, I was hiding, okay? So now he says, God says to him, who told you that you were naked? Probing question number two. And so Adam's sin is evidenced. He knows that he is naked, and the naked is not just physical. This nakedness, and I'm not completely sure what it is, but it has to be something that's spiritual, it's emotional, it is deep. It's not just their body parts have been exposed, they've been exposed, you ever worry about if somebody really knew me, they would never want to be in a relationship with me? If they really knew my thoughts, if they really knew my desires, why would they even want to be near me? That's almost what I think it is, that the corruption that is happening within is now exposing, and now they're trying to cover that up so people don't see it. And God asked that probing question. He's waiting for Adam to confess what God already knows he's done. Second probing, third probing question have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, once again, does God know this information already? God knows it. God knew it before he did it. So God is omniscient. He knows it. But he's probing him and he's prodding him to confess. I find it interesting as well as we will get further on. He's going to probe Adam. He's going to probe Eve. He does not ask a question of Satan. He just jumps to judgment with Satan. And it just shows the relationship of humanity with God, that God loves you so much that he was willing to send his son. The angels have already been condemned. The, the demonic angels have already been condemned. They're done. He never sent a savior for the demonic angels. He sent a savior for humanity. And he's probing this humanity. So he starts with this arraignment, and then he goes to the examination, and now we have admission. Now watch this in verse 12. The man said, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Okay. So we talked about this last week. He's projecting, he's, he's shifting blame and responsibility away. I don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on the last two words, I ate. He's, he's confessing he ate. God says, don't eat. He can do all of the song and dance and shifting blame horizontally and vertically, but the question comes down, did you eat? I ate. Okay. 1 Timothy 2, 4, uh, 14 says this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. See, the basic reluctance of humanity, the basic reluctance of us is to be honest. We don't want to admit we don't want to be honest. God is calling him to repentance, and he's calling each one of you to repentance. Repentance means it's a change of mind, it's a change of direction, it's a change of heart. You are going to say, I'm going this way, but Lord, I choose to go back this way towards you. Well, whether Adam likes it or not, he has already admitted, I ate. Watch what Eve does. Verse 13. Then the, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And then what did she say? And what? I ate. So once again, some commentators will say, well, she's generally being honest. The serpent did deceive her, but she's not owning anything here outside of the fact that I ate. And the reality is this, Adam, I ate, Eve, I ate. They made an admission of guilt. It's almost like if somebody went into the police department and says, I, I can give all the song and dance, but I murdered that person. It doesn't matter what all those other things, I did this. And that's what they did. 
their admission through all the pretense, through all the smoke screens, through all the blame shifting, the truth is revealed. They did it. And you know what? This has saddened me. They show a greater level of allegiance to Satan than they do to God. Because what does Satan do? Satan distorts the truth. Satan shifts the blame and responsibility. Satan doesn't own it. Satan blames God. They're acting like Satan more than they're acting like God. James said this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals this transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses it and forsakes it finds mercy. This interrogation of Adam and Eve shows that God's truth is going to be there. And God, as this prosecutor, has been asking these questions, and he's prodding, and he's probing, and the truth gets revealed. The answers are revealed for the surface truth. You have failed. Martin Luther, um, as I was doing my study this week, has an interesting concept about this section. He spent a lot of time in this section. But three points he came up with is this, that sin is first progressive, which I really like because when I sin, to continue to cover it up, I need to do more and more sin. One act leads to another act, which leads to another act. Sin is progressive. The second thing he said was that sin is the same everywhere, which is true. We don't want to believe it, but sin is universal. There are people that are liars and murderers halfway around the world. We have the same ones here. And we have the struggles that you and I have are the same type of struggles. Now, it may be different on the surface, but inevitably, sin is the same everywhere. It's been the same back Going back to biblical times is the same things that you and I have and struggle with today. So sin is progressive, sin is same everywhere, but sin blinds us to the goodness of God. That's the biggest piece here. It's progressive, it will go step by step, it's same everywhere, but we don't see the goodness of God. Even here, Adam and Eve should have known that the goodness of God is, if you run to him, that God is a gracious God, he wants to forgive you. They don't do that. And Adam and Eve's response to this shows a mixture of confession but blame shifting, and it doesn't work. And this is the verdict. The verdict is clear. Their disobedience has led to this pronouncement of guilt. And in response to their admission and all their excuses, God declares the serpent and Eve and Adam guilty. Guilty by not just his emotional standard, but guilty by his holy standard, guilty by his character. You have failed. It's a terrible verdict. There's a line in the um, hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of all the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And that, that sinless savior, he died for me. So when I want you to think about this, when God is calling Adam and Eve or what he's calling you to account, he's calling you to account to admit your struggle, but your guilt can be overcome by God's grace. God's grace is amazing. His, his grace is greater than all of your sin and all of the struggles that you have. And Satan's going to tempt you to despair. He's going to tempt you to keep looking back. You need to look upward. I, I often tell people, I want, if you're going to look back, I want you to look back at three events. Christ's cross, 
his empty tomb, and his ascension into heaven. And if you could look at your life through those lenses, that my sin has been atoned for in Christ, and it's been proven by the fact that there's an empty tomb, and my Savior is reigning on high, and he's coming back for me, and he's interceding for me, that sinless Savior is amazing. Penalty number two, the divine decree, verses 14 through 19. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, now once again, he didn't ask any questions of the serpent, he just went to right to judgment. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that latter part, portion. Now, God is passing sentence on the serpent. He's passing sentence on Eve, and he's passing sentence on humanity. It's interesting that he curses, curses the serpent. He pours a judgment upon humanity. I just found that interesting. So there's a twofold curse. Uh, first, you could see that he is cursing this physical animal, the snake. I don't know how many of you like snakes, but the vast majority of us don't like snakes. There's a revulsion within us. You see a snake and you back up. I think that goes all the way back here to the garden. There's some revulsion that people have to snakes. It is also interesting that as a society becomes more, I don't want to read too far into it. So this is just my thought. As a society goes further away from God, they have a greater affinity for snakes. I wonder why. And so I have no idea why that is, but I will tell you this, there's a judgment. Some think that the snakes actually walked on legs. I have no idea. And now they are slithering on the ground. It is clear that they have been cursed. Snakes have been cursed. And it talks about dust. It's a symbol of abject humiliation, this indignation lasting forever you're going to have. And the serpent's curse is this, that they're going to have to crawl on their bellies, they're going to have to eat dust all the days of their lives, and it is a perpetual sign that you have been humiliated and defeated. But, but God doesn't just pour a judgment upon the snake, God pours a judgment upon the devil, and we saw that in verse 15, the spiritual force behind that snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He, he talks about the fact that there is going to be this judgment that's going to come. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But he is judging not only the physical snake, but he is also judging the, serp, uh, the devil. Now he goes to the woman in verse 16. And he says this to the woman. The woman said, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbirth bearing. In your pain, you shall break, bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I, I think there's two different types of pain here. I could be wrong. Clearly, there's a physical pain that women have to endure in giving birth. Many of you in this room have given birth, and there, it was extremely painful. It's challenging. It wasn't just the pain of the childbirth itself. It was the pain of that baby kicking you night after night and grabbing you and all those things that a baby does, all the pain. And the physical pain of bearing a child is heavy. But I, I also wonder, for the moms in this room, that I've... How about the emotional pain? That child who, you know, dads 
have a concern for their kids. We do. We love them. We, we care about them. But there is something about a mom and their, their hurts that they have as they see their child struggling, maybe with faith, maybe struggling with choices that they've made. And the emotional, the mental, the relational pain, he, he's talking about this complex dynamic that happens in the relational order, this pain that seems to be great. But then he says it's not only the relational, the pain, the physical pain, or maybe the mental, emotional, relational pain, but then he talks about this desire issue. He talks about the fact that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, these words indicate that there's going to be this ongoing struggle, and there is oftentimes in humanity this struggle for who's going to be leader. In a home, oftentimes that happens. That leadership role was given to the husband, and the wife was brought in as a compliment to him. But every, and that was before the fall, so that wasn't a, a consequence of the fall. That was before the fall. That's how God ordained it. God created Adam first, and then Eve was created as his helper. And then after that, what seems to happen is that there is this, this fight for leadership in this home. And he talks about this desire, this desire, which is throughout scripture, this desire that happens within you. James chapter four says, what causes the conflicts and the fights among you? Is it not this, that you desire something, you want something, this internal fight that tends to happen internally and then relationally. And so this ongoing battle, this rebellion that Adam and Eve have done against God has brought about disastrous consequences in their relationship and will have a ripple effect in other relationships. And Adam has given up his God-given role of leadership and guarding and leading and caring for his wife, and that brought about a level of judgment. So the judgment of the woman's sorrow, that led to a judgment of man's toil, verses 17 through 19. It says this, and Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he has judged, he has cursed Satan, the serpent and Satan. He has judged Eve. He has judged Adam. Interestingly enough, he, he brings a judgment upon Eve, and it's the pain. He brings a judgment upon Adam, and it's the toil, it's pain. Pain again, pain in his work. Now, it wasn't that work was a part of the fall. It really wasn't because God called Adam and Eve to work, Adam specifically to work before the fall. So it's not that work is the consequence. It's the pain in work that's the consequence. The punishment is that the very ground from which you were formed is now going to fight against you so that you can eat. You need to eat and you need to fight that ground over and over. And every single one of us know what that feels like. We go to work and it's hard. It's toil. It's painful. It's exhausting just to be able to have sustenance. Adam will no longer enjoy the beauty of the garden's abundance. He will no longer enjoy the prosperity that is there. It is going to be hard work, painful work for the rest of his life. And the underlying judgment is this disruption of this harmonious relationship. There's been a disruption horizontally. There's been a disruption vertically, but then there's also been a disruption in nature. Even nature is fighting against you. 
Satan's judgment, the woman's sorrow, the man's toil, the universality of death. For dust you are, and dust you shall return. I don't want to be too morbid, but as I look at every single person in this room, every single one of us are going to take our last breath. Humanity, by their own sin, became mortal. He will die in a moment, at a time that's ordained by God. In Romans, it says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, it says the wages of sin is what? Death. What a terrible judgment. How can I ever find hope? How can I ever escape this? Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted what? Free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The the beauty, the penalty that God pronounces over Adam and Eve, not over the serpent, the serpent's condemned, but the the judgment that he pronounced over Adam and Eve and all their prodigy, he, he said this, that you have rejected me, but I am offering you grace. I'm offering you forgiveness. And the echoes of God's justice, but God's beautiful mercy and his kindness because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul can be counted free. The prosecution, penalty, the promise. Look at the proclamation in verse 15. Let's go back to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his head and he shall bruise, you shall, I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And they call this the proto-evangelum. It's the very first pronouncement of the gospel. Here in Genesis chapter 15, out of the darkness, God says, I'm giving you gospel. Now they don't have as much as you and I have because we have the finished work of this 66 books and it tells us about what Christ did for you and for me. But they they could look ahead to a savior and he, he starts here by saying, Satan, There is going to be one that is going to come, and you're going to bite at his heel. He is going to crush your head. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ came here, and he lived a perfect and righteous life. He died a substitutionary death. The enmity between us and Satan, between humanity and humanity, even the enmity between God and us, even when we were enemies, God was willing to come and pursue us and to die for us. What a beautiful message of hope. Jesus had said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand for truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. John said it later in his epistle. He said in 1 John 3, whoever practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The division between the Cain and Abel, which we'll hear about preached like next week, the division between those that are in Christ and those that are, on, on, that are in Christ and those that are not has been there right from the garden. And 
God says this, you can be either in Adam, and in Adam means that all of us are in Adam. We are morally corrupt. We all of us have guilt and condemnation, and we were alienated from God. But for every one of us that were born in Adam, all of us that trust in Christ can be in Christ. And instead of the moral condemnation, I could have a new nature. Instead of guilt, I can have forgiveness. Instead of condemnation, I can have acceptance. And instead of alienation from God, I can have reconciliation with him. It's the beauty of the gospel. Theologians call that justification. I want to read through, I want to share with you what it means to be justified. There's so much here that... I'm going to encourage you to take the outline home, look at the passages, and spend time really thinking about what God has done for you in Christ. Because he has done an amazing thing to bring about the healing, the restoration, and peace, to reconcile you with him radically. Justification means to be declared not guilty. It, It beckons you into a courtroom. This whole thing started in a courtroom, God's courtroom, And he he called Adam to his bar. And Adam failed to admit, truly, that he was wrong. He shifted blame and responsibility. God calls you to a new courtroom. A new courtroom where Jesus Christ is the prosecutor, but Jesus Christ is the one who is going to bear the punishment for you. And in justification, justification is this beautiful act of God's grace for you, in which he gives you free grace, even as a sinner. In Romans 3, it says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, sin is universal, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified means you're declared not guilty. You get into that court and you could be as guilty as sin, but God says you can walk out of that court not guilty. In Romans 4, verse 5, it says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, faith is counted to him as what? Righteousness. God could look at you as sinful as you are. God can look at you as righteous. Justification is not only God pardoning all of your sins, but it's accepting you as righteous in his sight. He looks on you and he looks on you in such a way that he sees Christ's life in you. If you're in Christ, it's amazing. On my worst day, I am still infinitely loved and totally accepted and completely forgiven. And so are you if you're in Christ. Justification is not based on your character or conduct, but it is based on his mercy, his kindness. And he redeemed you because of the righteousness of Christ and his precious blood that was shed. In Titus, it says this, he saved us not by the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, washing us with regeneration and the renewal of the spirit, whom he poured out on us richly in Christ Jesus, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When God declares you not guilty or justifies you, he applies the merits of Christ. He credits Christ's merits to your account. Your account is completely overdrawn. It is, it is so bad, you can never make it up. And God applies Christ's righteousness to your account so that when he looks at your account, it's a perfect account. In 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made him, 
Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and for me, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Not only did this, Christ fully and completely satisfied the justice of God. You will never have to worry about condemnation if you're in Christ. There is no condemnation. Nothing will ever separate you from God. He paid it fully for you. Isaiah says, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord, the Father, has laid upon the Son the iniquity of us all. Christ fully, completely satisfied that when he drank that cup, he drank it to the full for you and for me. The only condition that God offers us or has for justification, this declared not guilty, is faith. It's the only condition. Your faith. And even there, this is where he's so gracious. He gives you faith. In Romans, it says, and are justified by his grace as a gift and the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means appeasing, by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show that in God's righteousness, because of his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, faith. Or in Ephesians, it's faith in Christ. It's for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not even of yourself. It is a gift of God. And redemption and forgiveness are a matter of God's free grace to you. Now, I I probably should change the word here. It's not free. It cost Christ his life. It's free to you. But it cost Christ his life. In Ephesians 1, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I don't know where you stand today, But if you're standing under condemnation today, God wants to offer you grace and mercy. Verse 20 tells us about living by faith. It says, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. It seems like it came out of nowhere, right? Where'd this come from? I mean, it's like, wait a minute. We got the prosecution. We got the penalty. You're giving us judgment. You judge the serpent. You judge the wife. You judge the man. And now out of nowhere, you offer us promise. But now I'm going to name this woman. I think it's an example of Adam living by faith. I think Adam heard that there's going to be one that's going to come through this woman. And a savior is going to come. And so that's why he called her Eve. Her name means mother of all living. Life giver. That out of her womb is going to be life. And new life. And new life. And every one of us in this room is a byproduct of a mom's womb. And 2,000 years ago, out of a mom's womb, Mary, came the incarnate son of God. Who walked here. Lived here. Died here rose here for your salvation. And living by faith is God offers you faith as a gift, but then he says you need to live out that faith. You need to exercise that faith, and that's what Adam did. Verse 21 tells us about garments of skin. Then Adam, the Lord God, made Adam and for his wife garments of skin. 
and he clothed them. God provided garments, clothing Adam and Eve. Their, their haphazard fig leaves meant nothing, but God gave them skin. Well, where did that skin come from? Something had to die. I actually don't believe in an old, uh, I don't believe in an old earth theory, primarily because of things like this. Death was a byproduct of humanity's sin. I can trace back Adam to a certain period of time, and it wasn't billions of years ago. And all the death is a byproduct of humanity's sin. And the first death was not because of Adam or Adam's doing, it was God. God took the life of an animal, probably a lamb. I don't know for certain. Why a lamb? Because I believe that that animal was paralleling what was going to happen in the future. There are going to be lambs and animals that are going to die. You have to bring that. You would have to bring that time after time to cover your sin. And an animal was alive, and then the throat would be cut, and blood would be spilled, and, and it would, your sin would be covered. And it was every animal from the Old Testament that died, everyone, everyone, everyone was not going to ultimately cover your sin, and it was looking forward to one that would, Christ. The Lamb of God, that's why John would say, here's the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sin of the world. See, the garment of skin was to show that someone had to die so that you can live. Jesus Christ was the one who, who took his last breath for you, but then rose victoriously. So what should our response be? Our response should be, I renounce my, my goal for good works. I renounce all the things that I think I can do, and I lean wholly and fully on Christ and Christ alone. Behold him there, the risen lamb, the perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable that I am, the king of glory and of grace. God's pronouncing judgment, but the promise of redemption is right there. Let me take you lastly to the parting. Verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Stop there. The Godhead is talking. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't know completely. Theologians, there were a lot of different theories on this. But apparently they're in their corruption right now. And if they had eaten from this tree of life, they would be bound in their corruption forever. So, so part of God's graciousness, expelling them from the garden is, yes, you, you're a sinner and you need to be out of my presence. But another part of it is, I'm protecting you. I'm opening the door for, for protection. And it talks about these cherubs. It says, and therefore God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which they were taken. He drove them out and ate, um, sorry, drove the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Now, I'm, once again, I'm not completely sure, but cherubs um, and cherubim in the Bible tended to be around um, a level of judgment um, in Ezekiel. Um, cherubs were also on the Ark of the Covenant, which is important. 
these two cherub angels, they, they were supposed to be there on the ark and their wings were almost touching. And if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, inside the ark was, do you remember what was in there? The Ten Commandments that were broken because you and I break the law. And God has offered you a redeemer who keeps the law. And then on top of that ark, blood would be spilled on it. And that was symbolizing that somebody would die so that you could live. Jesus Christ became the Noah's Ark to take us out of the flood to safety. He became the Ark of the Covenant, where the lawkeeper, where for lawbreakers, he becomes your redeemer. And the cherubim keep you from outside of the holiness of God. What Jesus did, if you remember, when Jesus said, it is finished, something happened in the temple. And if you remember, the, the veil in the temple split in two from top to bottom. And it was symbolizing this, that the way of holiness has been offered to you. It has been offered to you because God, Jesus Christ, lived righteous and perfect for you. And he died. So humanity's journeys from the garden to glory has been initiated. If I were to sum this up, I would ask you to do three things. One, I would ask you to acknowledge your penalty. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you struggle. Recognize the consequences of sin. Sin is grievous. It's evil. It's disgusting. I want you to embrace the promise of God. In, in the midst of the penalty, I want you to see the promise. Your sin is never greater than God's grace. Ever. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Understand your penalty outside of Christ. Understand the promise of salvation. And understand that the parting from Eden is looking forward to paradise ultimately in heaven. We're at a crossroads in our lives. The pathways and the promises. We're on a journey that we're still struggling with the fall. But I want you to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. If you remind yourself of that, remind yourself that you've been reconciled to God through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prosecution, the penalty, the promise, the parting, and then eventually the return. So Lord, I pray for those that are here today who have never trusted in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, the invitation is here. Are you in your sin? Have you tried to cover it up with your own forms of fig leaves? Or have you shifted blame and responsibility to others? Or have you been running and hiding from God? God, you're very clear with your judgment. You tell us that we are judged. But you're also very clear with your mercy. Your holy love and your holy justice come together in the person of your son in the work on the cross. So Lord, I pray for those that have never trusted in you. I pray today that they would stop running, they would stop hiding, they would stop covering up, and that they would trust you. Grant them faith, Lord. For the many of us that do know you, Lord, I do pray that you would remind us that, yes, we live east of Eden, but we look forward to a paradise in heaven. 
Help us to live in the peace that your son has purchased for us today. And when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us all the guilt within, help us to look upward and see your son who made an end to all our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. And Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there Who made an end of all my sin Because the sinless Savior died My sinful soul is counted free For God the just is satisfied To look on him and pardon me my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Alleluia, alleluia, praise the one risen Son of God.
Lord, we thank you that you are the risen Son of God. We thank you for your plan of salvation for us. We thank you, Lord, that Genesis 3 is not the final chapter. Lord, we thank you for our pastors, Lord, who have studied and so eloquently bring forth, Lord, your word to us week after week. And, Lord, just opening up the word that we can understand it more clearly. Lord, cause it to have an impact on our hearts and our lives and how we live and decisions that we make in life, Lord. We thank you, Lord, so much. Lord, the, the grace that comes through, Lord, despite the curse of the fall, Lord, the, the, the focus is on the grace that is so overwhelming and available to each and every one of us. And, Lord, as Pastor James prayed already this morning, Lord, we just pray for those who haven't made that decision yet. This is just beginning to make sense. We pray through your Holy Spirit. You would speak to their hearts, their lives, and Lord, just lead them to you, we pray. Lord, go with us as we depart. We thank you, Lord, again for the blessing of this church, for the worship team, for the Sunday school teachers, and Lord, for everything that you have blessed us and enabled us to have, Lord, to learn more of you and to um, enable us, Lord, to be equipped to bring others to you. We ask in thy name. Amen. And a very brief uh, commercial. Um, <laughs> Sunday school is a wonderful thing. We have teachers who are preparing. Um, next week we have a special opportunity, Lord, through, for our Sunday school opportunity to hear uh, from a very gifted speaker. And um, just encourage you to just, you know, get up an hour earlier and, and, and benefit from Sunday school. It's been a real blessing, and I know it will be to you as well. So there's my plug. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye. Okay.